David felt fear. Some fears are, are natural, normal, healthy fears. Most of the time we can handle those better than those nameless, faithless fears that creep up on us in the dark and reach from behind the door and grab our minds and we're not real sure what it is that we're afraid of, but there's that it pervades us and penetrates us. Listen to David saying, I know he sang beautifully and he wrote beautifully. I don't think he sang any more beautifully than we just heard. Listen to the marvelous words of his hymn, a portion of the 91st Psalm. We live within the shadow of the Almighty, sheltered by the God who is above all gods. This I declare, that he alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I am trusting him. For he rescues you from every trap and protects you from the fatal plague. He will shield you with his wings. They will shelter you. His faithful promises are your armor. Now you don't need to be afraid of the dark anymore, nor fear the dangers of the day, nor dread the plagues of darkness, nor disasters in the morning. For the Lord says, because he loves me, he, you, she, he loves me, I will rescue him. I will make him great because he trusts in me. When he calls on me, I will answer. I will be with him in trouble and rescue him and honor him. I will satisfy him with a full life and give him my salvation. Someone has said there are 365 fear knots in the Bible, one for every day in the year. One reason the Lord said don't be afraid so often is because he knew we'd be afraid often. It happens to all of us. I can remember sitting in a hotel lobby in Prague, Czechoslovakia many years ago, all alone. My friend, a friend of many of you, and of this church, John David Hopper, missionary to Eastern Europe. He and I had been together preaching in Poland and Czechoslovakia. He had left in the afternoon. I was not leaving until the next morning. I was in the Intercontinental Hotel, afraid. Czechoslovakia is a very delicate, difficult place now. A lot of oppression there. Leaders still being jailed there in Czechoslovakia. Glasnost has not reached Czechoslovakia. But that's another issue. I was there and I was alone. I didn't know anybody. The pastor, Pastor Spett, now going to be with the Lord, Pastor Spett was out of town. I didn't know anyone to call. I didn't speak the language. I felt a stranger. Now maybe somebody here feels like that this, this morning. Uh, you feel like everybody here knows everybody real well and that you're the only one that's not known to everybody or anybody. Maybe you feel like I felt. I couldn't speak Czech, and, and you feel like, well, I don't know how to speak Baptist. I don't know how to speak God. I, I, don't, I don't know what words you're supposed to say. You feel kind of alone. I understand that feeling. We all understand that feeling. I sat there, and I was afraid to go outside. It was a cold day, but it's an exciting, invigorating day because Prague is an exciting and invigorating and historical city, one of the great cities of the world. But I was afraid to go out. And 
I just sat there in the hotel lobby, and everybody was having a good time talking and visiting, and a swift ski team came in and checked in, and they were all colorful and loud and looking forward to getting out on the slopes, and I sat there feeling very desolate. And I began to listen almost unconsciously to the music coming over the music in the hotel lobby. And you know what I heard? I heard the song that Martha sang just a moment ago. When you walk through a storm, keep your head up high. Don't be afraid of the dark. You never walk alone. That melody, first written and sung on the Broadway stage, came as the message of God to me in a hotel lobby in, Pro in Prague, Czechoslovakia, and it can come to you right here today. You don't walk alone. God is with you. God is with you. You don't need to be afraid. The story I've told in the past, well, I preached a sermon in type of scarecrows. This is a different message today, but the story applies. A bunch of blackbirds, a bunch of crows are watching this field full of berries there, ripe berries. And some of those crows and those blackbirds were just descending upon those ripe berries, just stuffing themselves so full of the berries they could hardly get airborne. But some of those birds were sitting around there on the telephone lines and on the fence line and on the fence post, and they weren't eating. Here they were in the presence of all of this ripe, delicious, delectable food, but they weren't eating. Some of their friends flew over there beside them and said, hey, come on, there's a feast out there. What are you afraid of? And the bird said in this beautiful essay written by Frank Borum, said, look, look at that terrible thing out there. And the other birds made fun of it. They said, you mean that scarecrow? It's nothing but something stuffed with straw. It's not real. Watch. And the bird would fly over there and perch on the scarecrow's straw-filled head or arms and then fly back to the other bird and say, why are you afraid? Come on, it is all here for you. That applies to us, that beautiful parable he went on to apply to the parable in the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew when Jesus tells the story about these three men, these three birds, and one of them says, in response to the Lord's initiative in his life, why didn't you use what I gave you, the abilities, the fresh fruit, the opportunities, why didn't you use what I gave you? And his answer was, I was afraid. I was afraid. I'd heard that you were a terrible taskmaster, and I was paralyzed by fear. Fear always paralyzes people. Inevitably, it paralyzes. Fear is a terrible thing. I have here a marvelous book. If you're not familiar with the People's Almanac, let me introduce you to it. I've had this book for many years, and it's a fun book to just pick up and read variety of subjects, more subjects than you can, uh, than I have time in an hour and a half to tell you about. I just want to read you a little bit out of this book about find your phobia, your fear. We all have them. All of us have them. We have a variety of them. They change. I pick up new ones along the way. I find out the things I was supposed to be afraid of that I didn't know. Maybe you will here today. Wouldn't that be wonderful to find out something new to be afraid of? I'm going to tell you about one here in just a minute. Here's the opening statement from this marvelous book. You too can, may, probably do have a fear, a phobia. There are by official estimates thousands of them on the scene today, specific phobias. And then he goes through a number of those. Little fears that range from the fear of oneself, that's monophobia, to the fear of everyone else. 
That's anthropophobia. And psychiatrists say they already scientifically labeled over 700 of these fears, these terrible dreads, these phobias, although they've just started counting. One of these fears is a long word I, can, I cannot pronounce correctly, I'm sure. It is called logizomechanomiophobia. That is the fear of computers. I've got that fear. I'm intimidated by those things. I watch first graders do that. It's terrible. Resent them. The fear of computers and computing and machines are politicians. We have some reason to fear some of them, don't we? But how can anyone generalize about fears when there are such specific ones, and there's a whole list of them here, three pages, two pages of just fear, fear of all sorts of things. You can't imagine how many of them there are. You'll find some new ones in there if you buy this book, but I'm going to tell you one right now. There are such specific fears around as, here's another one, long words. Archibutophobia. Well, let me spell it for you. A-R-A-C-H-I-B-U-T-Y-R-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. Got it? That is the fear of getting peanut butter stuck in the roof of your mouth. Now, you didn't know that when you came here today, did you? You tell me we don't inform people about what's going on in the world. I love peanut butter. How many of you are hooked on peanut butter? You'll never eat it again without thinking about this, I promise you. When Martha had serious surgery a few years ago, uh, I proved scientifically that a man can live for a week and a half on peanut butter crackers, Oreos, and Dr. Peppers. And I don't know, I'd have, I would have starved to death if I'd have known I could go there and roof my mouth and not been able to, to talk. That's tough for a preacher. Listen, actually, at least 14 million adult Americans suffer from unreasonable fears of one kind or another. Dr. Leslie Slocum, assistant professor of psychiatry at Montreal McGill University says, phobias can strike anyone, and not all phobia victims are timid, shy, retiring persons. All of us have our own fears. Now, I don't have time to mention all of mine or all of yours, but I want to mention a couple. One is the fear of failure. The fear of failure. Failure of, to live up to other people's expectations. Failure to live up to your own expectations. Failure in business. Failure as a, a parent. Failure of a marriage. Comes in a lot of shapes and sizes, doesn't it? The fear of failure. Let me introduce you to somebody you already know a little about. He had reason to be afraid. His name was Joshua. The name Jesus is a Hellenized form of that Greek, of that Hebrew word Joshua. That was Jesus' name, Joshua, Yeshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. Well, Joshua had worked with Moses. Moses had been the leader of God's people those 40 years in the wilderness. And Moses died. And Joshua had the job. 
listen to what God said to him, and think about your fear of the failure, whatever it might be, whatever area it might be in your heart, in your life, in your home, in your business, whatever it might be. The Lord said to Moses, now, this is God speaking, now, Joshua, Moses is dead. You're now the leader of Israel. Lead my people across the Jordan River into the promised land. You got to keep moving, Joshua. You can't go back. Those days are gone. You can't go back. You cannot live in yesterday. You can learn from yesterday, but you can't live in it. You can learn from it. Now I have a word for you as you face this tremendous task. Now Joshua, there's not going to be any more manna falling from heaven. People are going to have to go to work. You're going to have to go to work. They're going to have to conquer the cities. Nobody's going to roll over and play dead for you. It's not going to be a bed of roses. It's not going to be breakfast in bed. You're going to have to fight. You're going to have to conquer the land. It's full of the Philistines and others who would deny you access to this promised land. You've got a full-time job ahead of you, Joshua. And you're the new kid on the block, and it's yours. And you're following in the footsteps of this colossal giant of a man, Moses. So now I have a word for you, Joshua. I have a word for you, Buckner. I have a word for you, every one of you. Just put your own name there in the blank, because it's God's word for you, too. Be strong and brave, for you will be a successful leader of my people. You be strong and brave. You commit yourself to God. You commit yourself to your husband, to your wife, to your work. You make that commitment, and you're going to make it. You're going to be successful. You'll be a successful leader. You'll be a successful parent. You'll be a successful business person. You trust me. Trust me. Commit yourself to me and to one another, and you're going to make it. You need only listen to God repeat himself. We preachers, we fall in the good footsteps when we repeat it. God keeps saying it. He wants us to get the message. You need only to be strong and courageous and to obey every law that Moses gave you. You play life with the rules. You stay in step with my principles and my precepts. Don't get out of bounds. Stay where you belong. Do what you ought to do. Do right. As Dr. Troy used to say, do right. If the heavens fall, do right. And God will be right with you. You do right. You obey every command. And then he said, yes. He's repeating himself again, all in the first chapter of the book of Joshua. Be bold and strong. Banish fear. Banish doubt. For remember, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, if you make notes, mental or otherwise, let me give you just three statements that God is underlining right here. If you want to overcome the fear of failure, first of all, believe the promise of God. Believe the promise of God. Practice the precepts of God. And experience the presence of God. You'll never do it by yourself. You'll never do it just with the precepts. And just as a promise, you need the presence of God. Now look, if all we needed was just the right words to solve all mankind's problems, all human problems would have been saved in an hour and 20 minutes after Moses came down from the top of Mount Sinai. 
So you see, we need more than the Word written. We need the Word embodied. We need a personal experience. We need a personal acquaintance. We need God with us. So here are the three ingredients to overcoming the fear of failure. Believe the promise, practice the precepts, and experience the presence of God. Fear of failure. There's another fear I just touch on very quickly, and that's the fear of other people. All of us want to be liked by other people, don't we? My goodness. We all want to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked. I want people to like me. You want people to like you. But sometimes we're tempted to compromise ourselves to get people to like us. Some of you young people are tempted to have premarital sex with somebody who says, uh, yeah, come on, everybody's doing this, and I will, sure, I love you. Compromise the precepts. You'll get my approval, maybe temporary, very transitory, very fleeting, very selfish. Try these drugs, sure. You'll get my approval. Cut corners in business. You'll get to the top that way. Sure, I'll get you a better promotion. You'll move on up the ladder. Just cut the corners a little bit. Play the game. Go along. Fear of other people. The Bible says the fear of man, this is the King James, I like it, it sounds strong. The fear of man bringeth a snare. The fear of man bringeth a snare. I don't know whether my friend Howard Bud Jr. is here today or not. If he's in town, he is. Howard and I have been friends for a long time, Martha and I and Howard and B.D. And I remember being in Howard's office many, many years ago. He may not remember this. I remember it well. And he had a saying on the wall of his office I have never forgotten, and it is this. I cannot give you a rule for success, but I can give you a rule for failure. Try to please everybody. In a word, my friend, you and I want other people to like us, and we want to please other people. But in the final analysis, when it comes right down to the end of the road, you and I live our lives totally before an audience of one. It doesn't make any difference what other people think or say. In the final analysis, I give an account to God. I live my life before an audience of one. We are not to be pleasers of men, but pleasers of God. I will, therefore, as the Scripture says, fear the face of no man, because I want to face the face of Almighty God, having been faithful as He wanted me to be. Be true to God. Everybody else will not necessarily approve, but you don't need their approval on that great getting up morning when we all someday stand before the Lord and give an account of the deeds done in the flesh. E. e. Cummings, one of my favorite writers, said, to be nobody but yourself in a world that's doing its best night and day to make you into somebody else means to fight the hardest battle anybody ever fought and to never give up fighting. Don't you like people who are who they are? I'm so tired of phony kind of plastic people. It just disturbs me in the ministry to keep running into people every now and then who have sort of a ministerial tone about them. <laughs> sort of a steeple in the throat kind of tone. Stained glass language, you know. I.E. Gates was pastor of the First Baptist Church here many, many years ago. I never knew him. I wish I had. He, he was pastor there back in the 20s. 
some of you in this room probably knew or heard I.E. Gates. He wrote a great little book called Watching the World Go By. I.E. Gates chewed uh, tobacco. A lot of Baptist preachers used to do that. Back in those days, they chewed tobacco and smoked cigars. Charles Haddon Spurgeon smoked cigars. In fact, they named a cigar after him in London. That bothered him a little bit. They named cigars after famous people. That's how Prince Albert and others, uh, tobacco's got those names. They had a Spurgeon cigar. I never liked to chew tobacco too much. It made me sick, but if I could preach like some tobacco-chewing preachers I've heard about in the past, I'd try it. B.H. Carroll, great Baptist preacher, chewed tobacco. Had a big white beard, had the stains there on the side. I'm sure it was lovely to look at, you know, a stain there. I.E. Gates, Gates chewed tobacco. And uh, some of the ladies in the church came to him to call on him and said, Pastor, it upsets us that our pastor chews tobacco. It's just a, such a bad habit, and it's so unrefined. And he said, you're right. You are exactly right. He said, I, it, it, it's a terrible habit. It's bad. It's unhealthy. I agree with you 100%. I ought not to be doing it. But he said... I have to do at least one thing to keep from being perfect, and so I've chosen to choose tobacco. <laughs> well, now, they didn't get what they wanted from him, but could you dislike a guy like that? I mean, a soft answer turneth away wrath. To be nobody but yourself. God called you to be not somebody else. He didn't call to make me different, and he didn't call to make you different. He called to make us the best possible person we could be, given the raw material with which he has to work and the power of his Holy Spirit working within us. Now, a final word, the most important, and I hope you will hear this. The worst fear of all is the fear of God. And that's what the young man in the 25th chapter of Matthew was saying to Jesus. I was afraid. I was afraid. People are afraid of God. I had a woman tell me in the hospital some years ago, I was visiting with her. She said, you know, I, I believe I can talk to Jesus, but I'm afraid of God. I said, Jesus is God. He's all of God you will ever see. He is all there is. He is God. And if you want to know what God feels and how God acts and how God reacts, you look at Jesus. The word fear of God in the Bible means all, A-W-E, all of God, to stand in all of God, to stand in all of God's what? And to stand in all of God's creation, oh yes, we do that at times, to stand in all of God's majesty, certainly we do that. But the greatest thing, the most phenomenal, unbelievable, indescribable, incalculable, inscrutable quality of Almighty God is grace sufficient for all of our sins. That He loves us unconditionally. We stand in awe of that because we don't love like that. We're conditional. We make exceptions. God loves everybody as though there's only one to love. The magnificence of God's amazing grace and amazing love. You know, I believe the Bible... Goodness, there's so much talk today about what people believe. It's important. Let me just tell you very simply and very quickly. I believe the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is the inspired Word of God. 
and contains all that is necessary to salvation. That the Bible is the inspired Word of God, Old and New Testament, and contains all necessary to salvation except one thing. And that's my and your own personal faith in the author of this book and the author of our salvation and the incarnate physical expression of that God in Jesus Christ. You can believe this book and go straight to hell. You can read it and be lost. We're not saved by the pages of this book. We're saved by the person of the living Christ. Revealed here and in our hearts by His Holy Spirit. And a lot of what's happening among Southern Baptists and others today is frankly a debate and discussion about interpretation, about interpretation. For example, I remember Ruth Graham being interviewed once, asked if she and Billy agreed on everything. She said, when two people agree on everything, one of them's unnecessary. <laughs> when two people agree on everything, one of them's unnecessary. Look, what, what's happening is that some people are coming along and saying that we not only have to believe what I just said I believe, but I have to believe their interpretation of these words and their interpretation of this revelation. What, what they're saying here is that I must have an intellectual formulation of a doctrine and believe a certain intellectual formulation to be saved. For example, and you could pick almost any doctrine. You could pick creation. You could pick eschatology or the second coming. Let me mention the atonement. That's death and resurrection of Christ whereby we are saved. There are many theories, doctrines, interpretations of the atonement. Substitutionary atonement. He became sin for us. The ransom theory. He bought us back from the clutches of sin and of Satan. The influence theory, the example theory, whereby his death and resurrection, he influences us to be loving and sharing. The new creation theory, where he creates a whole new person that is not under the old law. There are many different theories of the interpret and interpretation of the atonement. I, nor you, are saved by how he did it. We're saved by him who did it. We're saved by the person of Christ. And after we come to know Him as our Lord and Savior, we will study and come to know and interpret many of these various interpretations and may disagree on some of them because some are more true than others. And we may find out there are other interpretations we haven't even heard about yet, but we're not saved by our interpretation of these events. We are saved by saying yes to Jesus Christ. For if I place the center of salvation upon my interpretation of those events, the center of salvation becomes my interpretation, it becomes my mind, it becomes self-worship rather than Jesus Christ is the center of my salvation. I have placed salvation, the source of my salvation, in my mind rather than in the mind and the heart of a loving and living God revealed in Jesus Christ. And so, a word about him, and I'm through. This amazing love that the choir and all of us sang about a few moments ago, amazing grace. 
anybody in heaven is forgiven. Not because they're Baptists, not because they played by the rules, not because they were better than anybody else. They may have been worse than a lot of folks. They are saved, they are in heaven because they were sinners who accepted the unconditional love of God and the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ. That's why they're there. They're not there because Santa Claus, uh, Jesus came sort of like Santa Claus with a list, checking it twice, seeing who's been naughty and who's been nice. We're not making it there on who's been naughty and who's been nice. We've all been naughty and we've all been nice. We're all a mixture. We're saved solely by the grace of God. Everybody in heaven is forgiven. Not because they've done good. Now listen. Think with me. Everybody in hell is forgiven. Everybody in hell is forgiven because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Everybody has been forgiven. Why are they in hell? This is the hell of it. They refused forgiveness. They're forgiven. But they wanted to do it on their own good work. They wanted to clutch their own good deeds in their hands and feel that they could somehow barter with God on the basis of their own works. It doesn't make any difference. If you're the best do-gooder that ever lived, you may be leading the troops of all the good do-gooders. But if you're moving in the wrong direction, what good is it? It'd be funny if it were not fatal, and it is fatal. We're not saved by that. The people in hell are not there because they're bad. They're there because they refuse to accept grace. They refuse to accept forgiveness. It was theirs, and that's what makes hell so horrible. That's what would burn about it. Nobody sent me here. I was freely forgiven by the grace of God, and I rejected it. I refused to let it come to me and through me to love others and forgive them. Seventy times seven, as Jesus said to his disciples, even as our Christ has forgiven us seventy times seven and many times more. One closing illustration, some of you kids will remember, will relate with this. Some of you older folks will, maybe more. We had one car and when I was growing up, and I remember talking to Charlie Fanning. I said, Dad, next Friday night, a bunch of us, you know, I want the car if I can have the car. I said, we've, uh, we're going to triple date, and I've been going with these other guys, and they've been able to get their car. And Dad, uh, I sure would like to have a car on Friday night. We're going to go up to Lakewood and Country Club, and we've got to dance, and we're going to go out to Sammy's, and it's going to be okay, and I'll be home. And uh, I just going through all these things, how good I was going to be and how careful I was going to be. And, and Charlie Fanning there standing with the car keys in his pocket. And he said, sure, Buckner, here they are. Be glad for you, too. Won't you be careful, but here they are. I stand there and watch those car keys dangling in Charlie Fanning's hand. I say, my hand's firmly planted in my pocket today. You never let me have a car. <laughs> I mean, I... I promise I'm going to make A in Spanish next semester. Well, I do. I believe you can move from an F to an A. I promise you I can do that, Dad. <laughs> just give me a chance. I just need to call on Friday night. This is really an important night in my life, and my friends are kind of counting on me. I just, Bug and I told you, here they are. You can have the car keys on Friday night. <laughs> you never let me have the car. I don't know what... I don't know what I have to do. I just, well, I'll, I'll move along. I'll carry out the garbage. 
I'll quit beating up on my brother. I'll do anything. You just let me have the cock button. Here they are. Here they are. Here, take them. I'll go out and talk to my friends. Boy, my dad's terrible. Taskmaster. Never does anything. I asked him for the car and won't let me have the car. Just can't have it. Boy, what a bad deal. Here are the keys to life. I give unto you the keys of the kingdom of life. Here they are. Come on, Jesus. I promise you I'm going to memorize the books of the New Testament. I promise you I'm going to do this and I'm going to stop that. Fine. Wonderful. It'll be great. Here. Here they are. Why don't you ever let me have anything? You go to church and things just don't not working out. Why don't you ever here? Here. Here. Take it. It's a gift. If you could work for it, it wouldn't be a gift. It's grace. If you could earn it, it wouldn't be grace. Accept it. They're yours. And fear will be banished. And life, and joy, and peace will come. One last word from the Word of God. John writing to the church. He says to me and he says to you, we need have no fear of someone who loves us perfectly, completely, totally. We need have no fear of someone who loves us perfectly. His perfect love for us eliminates all dread, all fear, all phobia. You see, he adds, our love for him comes as a result of his first loving us. Here they are. Now loving back. Following. Trusting. Loving. Just as I am, I come. Not just as I'm going to be and promise to be, and I'm sorry I have been, but just as I am, I come. That's our invitation. Not ours, his. We only extend it for him. Come, just as you are, to accept this great love of our Father.